The following audio is from All Saints Church. For more information about the church, please visit our website at allsaintsgb.org. Hear the word of the Lord, Amos 1, verse 11 through 2, 3. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity, and his anger tore perpetually. So he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire upon Timon, and it shall devour the strongholds of Bozrah. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead, that they might enlarge their border. So I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour her strongholds with shouting on the day of trouble, with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind, and their king shall go into exile. He and his princes together, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the strongholds of Kiriath, and Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting and the sound of the trumpet. I will cut off the ruler from its midst, and, it, and will kill all its princes with him, says the Lord. God, we thank you for your word, story of your grace. Let's pray. Oh Lord, teach us to number our days. And in all our days, satisfy us with your steadfast love. Make us glad in the hearing of your word this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In case you haven't been here for a few weeks, I want to make mention that we're in a new book, Amos. Uh, so maybe these verses shocked you off the bat. Um, last week we covered some judgment declarations in Amos 1, and as you can see, we are carrying on with the next three declarations of judgment. To start, let me ask you, is getting caught a good thing or a bad thing? Is getting caught a good thing or a bad thing? Well, if the person doing the catching is unkind, unmerciful, unjust, well then no, probably not, right? That means something bad might happen in the midst, or to you rather, some type of wrong treatment. It's not good to be caught by someone like that. But, but what if the person doing the catching is kind and merciful and just? Bring on the getting caught, right? Let the deviants, those wrongdoers, the naughty ones, let them get caught, right? We, we hate it when evil gets away scot-free. But what if the person getting caught is me? What if it's you? Well, we hope the person catching is kind and merciful, but we're not so sure we want them to be just, right? Isn't this true of us? When we get caught and when judgment or discipline knocks at the door, we are not opening it. We hate getting caught. But we want the deviants to get caught, right? We, we want the wicked, those who harm us or those who harm others, we want them to get caught. And if we're honest, maybe a little bit too much at times. And at times we're not so patient and waiting for the evil to get what it deserves. And this somewhat leaves us in attention, right? This, in our view of the judge, the creator, of God himself, we want him to be kind and merciful to us, but we want him to be fully just to the wicked and ideally right this second, right now, please, God. But at the same time, for us as Westerners, as postmodern people, 
we hear God's judgments, maybe like you did today, even on the wicked, and we can cringe. We think, hmm, God, that seems like a bit much, huh? I know that they have done some, some sin, but it seems like you've gone a bit far. Burning to the ground, exile, kings and officials dead. I don't know if your judgments are fair or if they're really good. Friends, our text today silences our questioning of God's judgments. And it also shows us that it is a good thing when both they get caught and when we get caught. To say it another way, we learn this. You can write this one down. God is all-seeing. God is all-seeing and always good. It's our truth. And therefore, we must see it as a good thing to get caught. We must see it as a good thing to get caught. There's three points for us uh, pulling this apart today. And the first one is, again, this truth that God is all-seeing, always good. And because of this, we must see his judgments, the cringeworthy ones, as good. So we look at the text, look at verse eleven, thirteen, chapter 2, verse 1. We see some repetition. We hear this, thus says the Lord. In the ESV Bible, you notice, and, and perhaps it shows it in, in our own worship guide, the word Lord is all capitalized. Whenever we see this in the text, this signals that this is God's personal name. Who is this God? This is Yahweh, which means I am who I am. This is the name that God had given to his people Israel. It's the same God who made the heavens and the earth and everything in between. And it's also his personal name that he gave to his people. So therefore, though Amos is a shepherd and a farmer, as we heard in verse 1, these are not his words. And these are not the words of a petty God, a God who woke up on the wrong side of the bed, a God who's flying off the handle and angry. No, this is a God who is personal, a God who sees all, and a God who is always good, who is saying these things. Notice too in verses 11, 13, and 2, 1, those same verses, we also hear a pattern of for three transgressions of a nation and for four. As Pastor Chad explained last week, this is a literary device, which is essentially saying this, because you kept on sinning or because, the, the, because your sin has become full, I will judge you now or your judgment is certain only a God who is indeed always good and who indeed sees everything could make such a judgment and it be fair and just and good. Again, this is the God who is always personal, always good, and he sees everything. Have you ever happened to watch a trial on TV? Or maybe you just watched a television courtroom show, maybe Judge Judy, Judge Joe Brown. I'm the boss, applesauce. That's Judge Judy's line. You listen to both sides go back and forth, and in the end, the jury gives a verdict, if there is one, right? Or the judge gives a verdict. And it's a just verdict, right? Have you ever heard the verdict and wondered, not so sure about that? Have you ever felt doubt about the verdict they gave? Maybe that was a bit too harsh. Maybe it just wasn't harsh enough. Is this judge really seeing things fairly? It may be appropriate for you to question the verdict when you hear it in our human and especially our television courts. But what about when you hear God's verdict? 
God's judgment. When you heard the declarations today, did you, did you cringe? When you heard the declarations, did you think, wow, that, that seems a bit harsh, God? Maybe you're a bit more balanced. Okay, these nations did some pretty horrific things. But do you really need to obliterate them, God? We may have good reason to question the judgments or conclusions of our leaders, of our justice department, of our local officials at time, at times. But when we come to the word of God, he is not a man. He is not an institution. We don't get to judge the true judger. He is not to be judged by us. God is not reactionary. He's not unkind. He's not unfair. He's not unjust in any way. He's the same Lord the one who saved Israel out of Egypt, right? The slavery, the same one that on Christmas morning and Easter morning that we're so excited about. It's the same Lord who became flesh, born in a manger, crucified on a cross. He's the gracious and merciful Lord who faces the just judgment that we deserved. And then he invites us to come. This is the same Lord. If you read the judgments of God like these today and you cringe or you think, I'm not so sure about that, God, that's a bit harsh, God. The issue is indeed not with God's word or his judgments. The issue is with our hearts. We must acknowledge that the Lord is all-seeing, that he is always good. And therefore, when we read judgments, even like the ones we read today, we need to recite. We need to recite something to ourselves. You know best. You know best. And your judgments are always good. This is how we handle the judgments of the Lord. And his judgments are always good, even when, or especially when, someone gets caught. It's our second, it's our second point. Because God is all-seeing and all-good, we must see the goodness of God in his timing, in his timing, when he catches them. If we look back at our text, we see who the them are, those Edomites, Ammonites, and Moabites. The all-seeing, always good, always personal God has seen all their sin. But he makes mention of the very worst of their sin. Look again to the first declaration in verse 11 and 12. We hear Edom's trial and the verdict declared. Now, at times in the Old Testament, the Edomites and the Israelites are actually called brothers. And that's because their ancestors were Esau and Jacob, who in fact were brothers, right? And so in verse 12, it says that Edomites, or the Edomites, pursued their brother, the Israelites, with the sword, casting off all pity, tearing in anger, keeping their wrath forever. This is imagery that's fitting for a battle, right? The Edomites pursued their defeated foe, and even though the battle was won, they continued to slaughter. They continued to slaughter. In rage, they continued to tear and cut the surrendered foe who had already given up. You hear the unrestrained, the unrelenting anger in this attack, right? It's there. So what the Lord declares over Edom, he says, just as your rage flamed in destruction, so my perfect justice will torch your most prominent cities, the northern city of Teman and the southern city of Bozrah. In verses 13 and 14, we hear of the Ammonites, who are actually the ancient cousins of Israel. There's a family reunion happening in in our passages today. We have brothers, cousins. The Moabites happen to be cousins as well, ancient ones at that of Israel. 
But the Ammonites were people who are, were cramped. No one likes to be cramped, right? That's not very fun. They were an ancient people cramped in their land. The Moabites were bordered on the south, or rather the, the Ammonites were bordered on the south by the Moabites. On the east, there was a desert. On the north, there was the Mount of Bashan. And then on the west, we find the Israelites in Gilead. Well, throughout history, right, the understanding has often been that the larger your lands are, the more power and prestige you have. And one way that nations won and then kept their lands was by utterly decimating their enemies or in committing such heinous acts that the enemy would never want to fight back. They'd never want to see the response they'd get. The Ammonites did both to the Israelites. They slaughtered the most vulnerable, pregnant mothers and their unborn children. This act is not only horrifyingly heinous, but it's also meant to ruin not only today, but tomorrow, decades down the line. This is a heinous act that ruins their future. You can imagine, imagine the pain and the turmoil, not only physically, but emotionally. And it's because of this that the Lord declares that the Ammonites' borders will be overrun themselves. Their capital of their land, Rabbah, the place of prestige, it's going to be decimated in a battle. And even God himself, this is interesting, God himself is going to be in that battle as the whirlwind. Where else was God seen as a whirlwind? It was when he blew himself as a tornado, a whirlwind between him and the Egyptians, or between rather the, the Israelites and the Egyptians at the edge of the Red Sea. God will be present as the whirlwind in the battle, decimating the Ammonites. And finally, God says that the Ammonite king and, official, and officials who destroyed the vulnerable, they themselves are going to be made utterly vulnerable, dragged off into exile. Look at the last declaration. The Moabites, again, are ancient cousins of Israel. But the sin of the Moabites seems a bit strange to us, perhaps. They burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. Now, in that day, lime was what they used to make plaster, right? If you want to paint a wall all white, they would burn down bones and then they'd paint the walls white. So why was this the sin God mentions for Moabites? Well, one, burning someone's body was a sign of extreme and shameful punishment in the Old Testament law. Two, the body of a person, even after death, deserves respect. Why? Because it's made in the very image of God. To desecrate one's body is to show immense hatred for them. And then third, the king of a land represents the people of the land. When America goes to war, friends, you're at war, right? The nation, the king, it represents its people. And so what is said and done to the king, it says and does something to the people as well. So if we were to say these three verses differently, it's in essence that the Moabite sin is to shamefully dehumanize not only the king, but all of Edom, saying this, your lives are of as much value as the plaster we use to whitewash our walls. You are worthless, worthless as a people, only worth being burned down to make lime so that we can paint our walls with you. God declares to the Moabites, you the city of your false god at Kiriath in verse 2. Your rulers, verse 3, will face the flames yourselves and you will be cut off. 
What we heard Pastor Chad say last week in the first three judgments holds true here. The harm these nations intended on others, it's come back on their own heads. I, uh, I talked a lot as a young boy. Thank the Lord he's changed me. <laughs> if you know me, that's not true. Uh, I'm a very verbal person. My wife laments. <laughs> But uh, what that meant for me when I was uh, a young boy in my neighborhood games was that my older brother, several years older than me, was often left to defend me and my mouth uh, from kids his age who were ready to pummel me, and rightfully so. Uh, but, uh, but sometimes our, the neighbor boys seemed to just make sport of ganging up on my brother, just to be cruel, just to beat up on him. And on one occasion, I was so scared that I ran yelling to my mom, they're killing him, they're killing him. They weren't killing him. But my mom, like a fiery whirlwind of just wrath, burst out of the house, and she came flying to set things straight. When the dust was all settled, I heard my mom say something she said a million times before. And she said it about these neighborhood boys. She said, I tell you what, what goes around, comes around. What goes around, comes around. The world knows this. Buddhism calls this karma. Hinduism calls this reincarnation on a more cosmic scale. Perhaps our neighbors might say this has to do something with good and bad energies. Don't upset the energies. But God makes clear that he is the only judge who sees all of the what goes around. And he's the only judge who will deliver the what comes around. In Hebrews 10, the Lord says, as we heard today, vengeance is mine. I will repay. In other words, God is saying, I will give justice. In my timing, on my terms. If we believe, if we believe that the all-seeing, always good God gives only good judgments, then we won't question his declarations. But we might have an issue with his timing still. Our, Our world is filled with a lot of what goes around, right? We see the what goes around in the sin of the nations in our text. And we see it in our nation. Countless murdered unborn children, bosses and politicians using people for their own ambition. We've seen that play run so many times. Immigrant image bearers languishing in cages. Whatever the policy should be, it's still not okay. We see upsetting things each day. They hit our eyes and our ears. And don't you ask, how long? How long, O Lord? When will you repay such evil? You've told us you've caught them, but when will justice be served? If you read the Psalms, this is, this is their complaint all the time. How long, O Lord? Perhaps you even wonder in hearing the text today, God, why don't you just stop these heinous acts before they even happen? Why did you let it get so far? Imagine those women in Gilead, Lord. The Lord has an answer, at least gives us some of an answer. Psalm 50, verse 21, it tells us that at times the Lord stays silent so that the wicked think that he is not paying attention. And they continue on doing whatever they want and filling up judgment on themselves. In Genesis 15, when God promises Abraham, he says, you and your descendants are going to be in this land, but not for about 450 years. The reason is because the sin of the people in that land were not yet full. God was showing mercy, allowing 450 years for those people to repent. 
Second Peter 3.10 says the same thing, that God does not wish for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. This means when we see suffering and evil, it may be that God is allowing them to fill up judgment on themselves. Or when we see suffering, it may be that God is actually showing mercy, allowing them time to repent and come back. Sometimes it hurts to suffer. Yes, it does. But what any man or person can take away from us in our bodies, they can never take away in our souls. And so we we will trust him even in his timing so that he might be just or merciful to the evil. We, again, can trust the timing of God because he's all-seeing. He's always good. And honestly, he is more merciful and more just than we could ever hope to be. His timing is indeed perfect. That's our second point. It was the longest one. The third one is the shortest. So stick with me here. The third one, again, is this truth that God is all-seeing. And he is always good. And I must see it as a good thing even when I get caught. Yikes. When we read these declarations, they can feel really far away, right? The Whoites did the what to the Whoites and the Whereites. What, what's going on here? Why is this relevant to me? Well, it's relevant for the points that we already shared. Seeing that God is all-seeing, always good, always giving good judgments, that his time, his timing in catching them itself is good. But it's also relevant because it exposes not only their hearts in the text, but it also exposes your heart as well. In the hearts of the Edomites, what do we find? Uncontrolled anger. Unrelenting bitterness. And when the opportunity struck, they struck, and they struck, and they struck. No pity, no compassion. Their unrestrained anger led to such heinous sin. In the hearts of the Ammonites, we find unfazed ambition. They destroyed all those in their path, being willing, willing to pay any cost to get ahead, to get what they wanted. Their unrestrained ambition led to such heinous sin. The Moabites, in their hearts, we find unrelenting hatred. It's their disdain for their enemies, Edom, that went unchecked, and they refused to treat their enemies like a human being. Their unrestrained anger led to such heinous sin. When we begin to dig a bit deeper to the hearts of the peoples in this text, They actually don't seem so foreign from us. Anger? Have you been angry? Ambitious? Mm Mm-hmm. Hatred? Sometimes. Those same sins will be shown to be nestled in the heart of Israel in just a chapter. Just wait. Israel has it coming to themselves. And if we're really honest, if we're really honest, the sins are in our hearts too. And it's no fun getting caught, right? During the NBA Finals this year, Go Bucks. Uh, I remember early in the seven-game series complaining that the referees weren't calling fouls equally. It seemed like they were favoring the other team, the Suns. How inconsistent of them. And, ugh, how gross was it that the Suns fans, they were just cheering it on. So inconsistent. Well, games five and six came around, and the Bucks had the championship right in sight. And the fouls started to be called maybe the other way. Maybe against the Suns. And, at, and perhaps at times, there maybe was even no foul at all. Yet I cheered. I celebrated. I shouted. Any cost is worth the Bucks winning a championship. One dear friend leaned over, named Cody. 
Cody. He's not here today. <laughs> Otherwise, he'd laugh. He said, Ben, do you think you're being very consistent? <laughs> what I learned was I shouldn't watch basketball with Cody. <laughs> no, what I learned is that what I despised in the Suns fans earlier, it was in my very own heart. Caught. I love cheering when the refs call fouls against my opponent. Israel loves cheering as God calls fouls on the nations. We love cheering when it's them and never when it's us. This passage is so relevant to us because even in God's judgment on the nations, our hearts are exposed, caught. Are you given over to uncontrolled anger? When your sibling hits you, did you hit them back seven times? Did you break the thing they loved? Parents, parents, when you discipline your children with a pat on their behind or with a raised voice, is it always controlled? Is it godly anger? What about warring in words or in your mind, even the words unspoken with your spouse, your parents, your in-laws? Is it restrained? Maybe your uncontrolled anger or bitterness is just seething inside of you. Hatred for a boss, your neighbor, your parent, your president. And when the opportunity arrives, you will strike and strike and strike, even if it's just tapping away on a keyboard on Facebook. Caught. You're like an Edomite. I am too. Ambition is the acceptable sin of a capitalistic America. I love capitalism. There are many good things. But the motto is compete and beat everyone else at whatever cost to get whatever you want. In your own ambition to get ahead or to get what you want, have you defeated the weak? Have you avoided the vulnerable? Have you neglected the needy, the awkward, the friendless? Have you sought that promotion or perhaps a better place in the lunch line or recess line? All to the hurt of another person? Caught. You're like an Ammonite. I am too. Do you hate your enemies? And I'm not talking about ISIS, who wants you dead because you're an American or, and or a Christian. I'm talking about those who you could not think more differently than in our society. I'm not saying you're wrong about your ideas. Perhaps, but I'm saying if you can't feel anything but disgust towards them, can't think anything of them but they're foolish, stupid, or wicked for their views, or if you simply wish they'd just move somewhere else like Canada, it is likely you have hatred in your hearts towards them. Thinking this way of enemies is actually dehumanizing. Caught. You're like a Moabite. I am too. Friends, you can't escape the God who sees all. You're never alone, never with your phone in your room, and you're never alone in the quiet of your thoughts. You are always caught. And it is a good, nay, a gracious thing for you to be caught. Why? Why is it good to be caught? Because until you know you're caught, until you know you're caught, you will never understand the cross You'll never care about God's invitation to you to come out of the slavery of your sin, to come out of the deserved judgment that you have. It is a gracious thing to be caught. On the cross, God sends the fire of his righteous wrath, not upon you, O caught ones, no, but upon Jesus Christ. Jesus is conquered in battle. Jesus is hated and dehumanized. Jesus is cut off. 
Jesus is torn perpetually. Jesus is killed. Jesus is caught for you. He faces what you and I deserve. And our only response, all saints-ites, is to repent, is to come. Don't you see how good it is to be caught? Don't you see how good it is, sons and daughters of disgrace, to be righteous made, be caught, and call it gracious, because the cross is for you. I close with no story, no anecdote, but I only revisit the scripture of salvation today. If you, if you want to flip back, you can to the scripture of salvation. And I'm going to read, verse 20 isn't there, but 21 is, and I'll read both. It says this, We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That means to be made friends again, to be, ha- to be, ha- to be made to have a right relationship again. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be, may, be made right to God for our, the caught one's sake. He made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Sons and daughters of disgrace, be righteous made. God made Jesus to be sin of any Christ-believing Edomites, Ammonites, Moabites. Ruth, Ruth, an ancestor of Jesus, was made righteous, if you've forgotten. God made him to be believing Israelites' sin. To be believing all saints' sin. I implore you, believe on Christ Jesus. Whether it's the first time today or again for the millionth time, believe on Jesus Christ because the good judgment of God was sent on him who became sin for you on the cross. Because God is all-seeing, because God is always good, we call his judgments good, and we call his timing in catching good. And we call it good when we get caught too. It drives us back to the cross to receive the invitation that God extends to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, can such a message be true? God, can it be true that Jesus came to bear the punishment that these peoples in the text deserve? The peoples who underneath their actual physical sin There are emotional, there are other sins there, sins that we relate to. Do you come to save those with unrestrained anger, unfazed ambition, unrestrained hatred? God, your word says it's so, and it is such good news for us. God, I pray for each of us that we would know that we are caught, and it is a gracious thing to be caught by a gracious God who comes and faces the judgment we deserve. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for coming. And it's in your precious name that we do pray. Amen.